God has his use to make of angry men, like him who in the cruel Pharaoh's land slew the Egyptian in a rage, then buried his body in the desert sand. Seeing his brothers scourged, enslaved, and bound, beaten and broken for a tyrant's fame, rearing vast pyramids in ceaseless round of endless toil, his anger flamed, white flame. The flame would have rent the altar with its heat had not God bid it smolder forty years until the burning bush at Moses' feet showed him God's passion for the people's tears. Then he who slew in white heat of youth went forth to do the mighty deeds of God. His righteous anger burned no less in truth, for now he smote with the Almighty's rod. And out of anger for a brother's wrong grew a great nation and a mighty throne, and out of weakness championed by the strong, Israel from bondage came into its own. Then, in the travail of the pregnant years, another of God's angry men was born. He felt the bitter burning of the tears of slaves whose groaning midnight had no morn. The prairie stretch was freedom's road to him. Its soil was where injustice could not grow. Its wind blew voices from the stars to him, calling upon his soul to strike the blow. He struck his blow, all impotent it seemed, and those for whom he struck toiled on in tears. He did not live to see the thing he dreamed. Men said his blow retarded freedom's years. John Brown, thy soul is marching boldly yet across the path of cold, indifferent men. The world cannot and will not soon forget that soul that counted not the cost again. And pity those soft youth this nation rears, who never strike a blow for human need, those puny souls that live behind their fears and grow more puny, fed on lust and greed. God, give us angry men in every age, men with the indignant souls at sight of wrong, men whose whole being glows with righteous rage, men who are strong for those who need the strong. That was the eminent voice of my friend, the veteran actor, Norman Marshall, who also happens to be the portrayer of John Brown in his own one-man play, John Brown, Trumpet of Freedom. Norman was kind enough to read a poem from 1910 entitled, God's Angry Men. Today, we'll chat about the author of God's Angry Men and even consider whether John Brown was an angry man, at least in the typical sense of the word, and we'll even have to pay a quick visit to the 20th century with another so-called angry man. So have a seat, and let's get started. From New York City, this is John Brown Today, and I'm your host, Louis A. DeCaro, Jr. Charles Monroe Sheldon was born in Wellsville, New York in 1857, about the time John Brown, the abolitionist, was at the height of his notoriety as a veteran of the Kansas Wars. Sheldon was educated at Phillips Academy, Brown University, 
and Andover Theological Seminary, and he was ordained as a congregational clergyman in 1886 and took his first pastoral charge in Waterbury, Vermont that same year. But the Waterbury congregation was too conservative for Sheldon, who was persuaded by that branch of American Protestantism in that era that is remembered as the social gospel set. Sheldon moved westward. He married a young lady from Kansas and became the pastor of a church in Topeka. It was during this time that Sheldon coined the influential cultural phrase of the day, What Would Jesus Do?, based upon a very successful Sunday evening sermon series. Transcriptions of his series were picked up for publication in a magazine and eventually were even more popularized by his 1896 book, In His Steps, which sold six million copies, an impressive number of copies for that time. Interestingly, Sheldon never copyrighted his What Would Jesus Do? phrase, and it was repeatedly appropriated without attribution to him. In fact, it was most recently introduced as a kind of style acronym WWJD, commonly worn on wristbands. As a clergy activist, Sheldon brought social concerns to the foreground. He held many of the views of other social gospel people in that era, such as being against alcohol abuse and advocacy of peace principles. While he has been called a socialist, it seems more likely that Sheldon represents something more akin to the democratic socialism made popular by Bernie Sanders, only centered upon the Christian gospel. In other words, Sheldon wanted to see businesses redistribute wealth, but he did not believe the state should own the means of production. Overall, the question of the relation of the gospel to social needs was beginning to divide traditional Protestantism into two firm and opposing branches, a conservative, capitalistic movement that came to be associated with Protestant fundamentalism in the early 20th century and a socially-minded Protestantism that wanted to make the concerns of the poor and the disenfranchised the priority of Christian action. Of course, the rift steadily widened between these two groups right up through today, when the majority of white evangelicals have assumed a most rigorous and reactionary conservatism that is contemptuous of any expression of social justice. While Sheldon's theology was otherwise far more conservative than contemporary liberal Christians, his approach was, in shades of John Brown himself, both traditional in its piety and yet radical in its approach to justice. Notably, Sheldon became interested in a black settlement called Tennessee Town that had been founded on the southwestern border of Topeka in 1879. The westward relocation of blacks in the later 19th century, now remembered as the Exoduster Movement, was made in response to the racist betrayals that marked the demise of Reconstruction after 1877, when Northern Republicans compromised with Southern whites in order to gain political support. With this compromise, white terrorism was unleashed upon the vibrant and prospering black community in many sections of the South, undermining its significant strides made during Reconstruction when the black community enjoyed the protection of the federal government. That protection having been removed with the approval of white society, black advancement was destroyed, even as Southern whites hypocritically heralded their own redemption, a return to power and domination over black life, enforced by Jim Crow laws and by terrorism, all of which effectively thwarted the basic rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness by the formerly enslaved community. 
The Exodus Duster movement thus drew its black colonists from throughout the South, including the Tennesseans, who likewise headed out to Kansas, the state still having the aura of John Brown associated with it in the eyes of many African Americans. Other black centers of refuge were made in Oklahoma, Colorado, and Indiana. After visiting Tennessee Town, Sheldon joined an effort to establish the first African-American kindergarten west of the Mississippi River in Topeka. The successful kindergarten program was followed by the establishment of black businesses, and Tennessee Town remained quite vibrant well into the second half of the last century. Interestingly, one of the children in Sheldon's black kindergarten was Elisha Scott, who grew up to become a lawyer and who successfully argued before the Kansas State Supreme Court to integrate a local elementary school in 1949. Less than a decade later, Elisha Scott's sons, one of whom was named for Sheldon, were on the legal team of Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP, which successfully argued in the famous school desegregation case Brown v. Board of Education, 1954. Nick Childs, who founded the most famous black newspaper of that time in Kansas, the Topeka Plain Dealer, appreciated Sheldon. However, during a short-term editorship of the Topeka Capitol, Sheldon had promised to let his what-would-Jesus-do philosophy guide his influence upon that paper. Childs was disappointed in the outcome, stating that Sheldon had not used his influential role to protest racism, but instead had limited his progressive op-eds to spelling Negro with an uppercase N. Sadly, it seems that despite his compassion, Sheldon found it difficult to engage in the most important aspect of social philanthropy yet needed, explicit anti-racism. Notwithstanding this observation, Sheldon connects directly to the John Brown theme in the publication of his poem, God's Angry Men which appeared in the New York Independent in July 1910. As a publication, the Independent dated from the mid-19th century and was founded by congregational clergymen to advance the concerns of their denomination, which happened also to be John Brown's denomination, although the paper functioned quite effectively as a mainstream news source in its own right. Following the Harper's Ferry Raid, Brown was saluted in the pages of the Independent, and 50 years after his death, Sheldon published his salutation. Incidentally, this was the same year that Oswald Garrison Villard published his influential biography of Brown, 1910. And not being a close student of Sheldon, I'm not able to surmise the source of his admiration for Brown. Being a congregational minister and an advocate of the social gospel in that period, it's likely that he would have absorbed admiration for Brown, particularly because Brown was still a prominent cultural figure well into the early 20th century. But after Sheldon's move to Kansas, John Brown probably became even more a point of reflection for him, given the extent of admiration for the abolitionist that was typical of that state. Finally, however, the fact that Sheldon had worked among the exodusters in Kansas may have been the icing on the cake, so to speak, given that the black community at the turn of the century still looked to Brown's memory for inspiration. The God's Angry Men theme is an interesting one in itself, particularly the angry part. It is true that John Brown could be quite angry over slavery, but actually to speak of him as an angry man probably is excessive in biographical terms. What I mean by that is that reminiscences and descriptions of him rarely speak of Brown as being angry in general. Brown wasn't angry like that. 
But when people have referred to him being angry, they're usually speaking of him when some conservative or racist free state person had made the mistake of minimizing the wrong of slavery in speaking to him. As a matter of fact, I know of two such cases on record. The first was among the so-called insanity affidavits filed in Ohio by Brown's associates in 1859, which were done intentionally in the hope of getting his death sentence commuted in Virginia. An Ohio friend, S.M. Goodale, intentionally portrayed Brown as insane. But reading between the lines, it is not difficult to see that although Brown was not really insane, he could get quite angry over hypercritical comments made by conservatives. Goodale says that he met Brown in the summer of 1857, after the latter had left war-torn Kansas, the two having met on a train going between Columbus and Cleveland, Ohio. Goodell recalled that during a conversation about slavery with an enthusiastic Brown, he told Brown it was the fault of abolitionists that Kentucky was still a slave state, which no doubt would have irritated him. And as if this were not enough to ruffle John Brown's feathers, Goodell perhaps used the N-word, since he used it in retelling the incident. At this, Brown suddenly stood up with clenched fists, retorting that the South would have become free within one year were it not for scoundrels such as Goodell, who had riveted the chains of slavery. Interestingly, though, Goodell apparently hastened to add that despite such an outburst, John Brown was not typically an angry man, but had, quote, ever manifested to me a kind, benevolent, and human disposition, end quote. The other so-called angry man episode that I can recall is almost worth a chuckle. In 1882, an associate of Brown submitted an anonymous reminiscence to the New York Daily Tribune, describing an incident that probably took place in the spring of 1858, after Brown had returned from liberating a company of enslaved people in Missouri and carrying them to freedom. According to this man, he happened to see John Brown eating at a hotel restaurant in Cleveland, and the two began to talk, and he found Brown's conversation quiet in discussing slavery. But when the man insinuated that Brown had done wrong by having taken some horses from the Missouri slaveholders, and he challenged him to reconcile that action to the Bible, Brown exploded. Instantly, his countenance changed, the man recalled. His eyes flashed, his brow contracted, he partly rose from his seat, and he pounded the handle end of his table knife so hard that plates and tumblers, knives, forks, and spoons were dancing a foot high. Upon what principle, Brown shouted? Upon the same upon which Moses spoiled the Egyptians. Yes, in this case, John Brown was quite an angry man. Sometimes conservatives can be so darn annoying, like when they think a flaming overturned car is excuse enough to dismiss the entire premise of a Black Lives Matter protest. This kind of reasoning got Jesus angry too. He called it straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Speaking as a biographer, of course, I would love to see John Brown lose his cool, pound his steak knife on the table, and all that tableware go flying. Besides Sheldon's 1910 God's Angry Men poem, I don't recall seeing any reference to Brown being an angry man until the publication of Leonard Ehrlich's 1932 novel, God's Angry Man. Never read it, probably never will. Then, perhaps most interestingly, the last reference that seems to flow out of Sheldon's poem is the name of a newspaper column by Malcolm X, God's Angry Men, which was published in 1957 and 58 
a full century after John Brown pounded his fist in anger. Malcolm's column concurrently ran in a number of African-American newspapers, the New York Amsterdam News in Harlem, the Westchester New York Observer, and the Los Angeles Herald-Dispatch. The general content of Malcolm's God's Angry Men material is what I have called elsewhere a finely crafted view of the Christian world, based on his famous prison readings, his cultic black Muslim use of the Bible, and an otherwise penetrating view of society and its institutions, all pressed into service for the elevation of the Nation of Islam's leader, Elijah Muhammad. Of course, Malcolm did not reference John Brown in these columns. It would have been entirely inconvenient for him to do so, particularly because the Nation of Islam would never admit even to the existence of one worthy white ally in all of history, at least not when Malcolm was writing in the 1950s. Interestingly, though, the one firm biblical parallel that Malcolm's God's Angry Men has with Charles Sheldon's God's Angry Men poem of 1910 is Moses. In Sheldon's case, the parallel drawn is between Moses the Liberator and John Brown the Liberator. In Malcolm's God's Angry Men column, he compares the biblical Moses to his leader, Elijah Muhammad, whom he calls a modern Moses, all in uppercase letters, too. To Sheldon, if John Brown was a Moses-type figure, then the biblical bondage of the Egyptians represents black enslavement. To Malcolm, if Elijah Muhammad is the angry man of Allah, then ancient Egypt represents the United States, which Malcolm concludes, once more in all uppercase letters, the land of bondage. Now, as to this last point, at least John Brown would have agreed, having referred himself to the United States in 1859 as a slave nation. Come to think of it, John Brown and Malcolm X were alive today, I think they'd still be angry over things like racist constabulary violence, the racist mass incarceration system, and the latest attempts to undermine voting rights, not to mention the January 6th violent invasion of the United States Capitol. So, God, give us angry folks in every age, folks with indignant souls at sight of wrong, Folks whose whole being glows with righteous rage. Folks who are strong for those who need the strong. From New York City, this has been Louis A. DiCaro Jr. And this is John Brown Today. <laughs>